All right, Forge family, let's begin. Last time together, we were in chapter 10 of Daniel, in which he was confronted by a theophany, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Messiah. That experience of God's presence dropped Daniel on his face. A messenger angel came to lift Daniel and to strengthen him and interpret for him. The angel said that he had been dispatched with the answers from heaven three weeks previous, but had been hindered by the prince of Persia. It was not until Michael, the archangel, came to fight alongside of him that the messenger was released to carry the answers to Daniel. The prince of Persia is a territorial spirit, a fallen angel, a demonic entity that had Set on, uh, was set on resisting the return of the people of Judah from exile back to Jerusalem. Michael is the angel assigned to oversee and protect all things related to the people of Israel. And as such, he was fighting this demonic entity for the people of God. That warfare had begun at the instant that Darius had released the exiled Jews to return to Judah. For out of Judah would come the Messiah, whom Satan had set himself and his fallen angels, to stop. Having strengthened Daniel, the messenger angel prepared to return to assist Michael in the, in the battle, but before, before he departs, he turns to Daniel again to give him more insight into the future of the people of Israel that has been inscribed in the writing of truth. Yahweh has set down in some form of writing what will come to pass regarding all of history, his people Israel, the church, and us. All right, let's pray. Lord, over us, we bow and give thanks for your planning that is coming to pass. Thank you for historical records of your interactions with kings and empires. We would be among those who embrace your word, who, who obey your word, who await your coming. Thank you that you are fully interactive and all-knowing about our situation and time. We look to you for your grace and mercy, your provision and your protection, and your promises made to bring us home to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, chapter 11 is an anomaly in the scriptures. The messenger angel keeps pouring out the future to Daniel that he might know what awaits his people Israel. And first one begins with that angel speaking to Daniel. Quote, In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and protection for him. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. And as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. This unknown messenger angel, thought to have been Gabriel, tells Daniel that from the first year of, of Medo-Persian rule that became the Persian Empire, that messenger angel had been alongside of the regent, Darius the Mede, to strengthen and encourage him as he set in motion the release of the exiles of Judah to return home to Jerusalem. Then the angel tells Dar uh, Daniel that four more kings of Persia will arise. They were to be Cambyses, Smyrdas, Darius I, Hystaspes, and Xerxes. 
both the latter two kings, that's Darius and Xerxes, okay, went to war against Greece, with both causing great death and damage to that nation, but ultimately were defeated. The fourth one would be the most wealthy and powerful to date. That was King Ahasuerus, also named Xerxes. Now, named or titled, you know, that's, he, was, he was called by multiple throne names, okay? This was the husband of Esther, queen of Persia. It was under the rule of Ahasuerus that the wicked counselor Haman attempted to annihilate all the Jews in Persia, in the Persian Empire. Esther, having been exhorted by her uncle Mordechai, placed herself on a life or death intervention course to, before the king to save her people. Satan was at work attempting to remove all of the line leading to Messiah. Ultimately, Haman is trapped and executed, and the Jews were able to protect themselves under the law of the Medes and Persians from the genocide that was headed their way, and they survive. History says that there were more Persian kings to follow, but it was this list that were particularly involved with the Jews' repatriation and rebuilding of the temple. And it was Xerxes who triggered the savage response of Alexander to come swiftly for revenge. John MacArthur has an excellent insight into what was happening then and now. Quote, one of Satan's most effective strategies, and therefore one of a believer's greatest dangers, is the delusion that no seriously threatening conflict between good and evil is really raging in the invisible and supernatural reality today. Numerous ancient evils, such as slavery and race hatred, have disappeared or improved dramatically. People have never been so concerned about getting along together, understanding one another, and working with one another to improve individual lives and society as a whole. That sort of thinking not only is naive, but inevitably it will lead to lethargy, indifference, indolence, and spiritual stagnation. A biblical perspective on the situation and a clear perception of the direction things are really moving, especially in light of Scripture's teaching about the end times, does not leave room for such delusion in the mind of any believer. The war between God and Satan has not diminished, but intensified, and so has its front on this earth. Close quote. Verses 2 to 20 lay out the history of the regions north and south of Palestine and the Jewish homeland for the 170 years after Alexander. Now, I'm going to summarize for you because this is just a, a run of names and dates and, and, uh, and prophecies. So here comes the summary. After Alexander's death in 323, all his family, his, his wife, his mother, his two sons, all, everybody in blood relationship to him were murdered. For 20 plus years, there was open war over who was to inherit portions of the empire that Alexander left. The two kingdoms that bear on the people of Israel were the Seleucid Empire, including Syria and Babylon, and the Ptolemaic Empire, which ruled Egypt and Arabia. These kingdoms were referred to 
in Daniel 11 as the king of the north and the king of the south. Now, you're going to hear those terms, king of the north and king of the south again. Just hang on to those. First, the Ptolemies grew strong and extended their military might northward around Palestine to push back at the southern borders of the Seleucid kingdom of Syria. Rather than go to war at that point, the south and the north signed a treaty, sealing it with the marriage of King Antiochus II Theos of Syria, okay, he's the Seleucid to the north, and Berenice, the daughter of Ptolemy II Theos of Egypt. Now, that would be part of the king of the south, okay? That meant that King Antiochus II had to first divorce his wife and mother of his son. Later, that divorced wife murdered Berenice, her baby son, and Antiochus II in 246 BC. Verse 7 said that there's an immediate response from the Ptolemy uh, kingdom. And Ptolemy III, Eurgetes of Egypt, raged to the north to revenge the death of Berenice in the same year, 246, conquering that region and looting its treasuries. His forces took back to Egypt some of the metal and stone idols that the Seleucids had looted previously out of Egypt. In 240 BC, Callinicus, the king of the north, would strike back against Egypt, but was soundly thrashed and defeated in battle. The Seleucid princes kept up open war with the king of the south, as described in verses 11 to 35. The king of the south, Ptolemy IV Philopater, devastated the armies of Antiochus III, also known as Antiochus the Great. Thirteen years pass, and then Antiochus the Great returns with a great army, striking Egypt several times and bringing Palestine under Seleucid rule. In 200 BC, General Scopus of the Ptolemyan kingdom struck back against the Seleucid armies, but ultimately surrendered to Antiochus III. Antiochus III, or Antiochus the Great, was pressured by Rome to make peace with Egypt, and in doing so, he offered his daughter Cleopatra to marry Ptolemy V Epiphanes, believing that she would help subvert Egypt's plan. The opposite was true, for she loved and helped her husband against Syria, against the Seleucid Empire. Ten years passed. And in 190 BC, Seleucius, excuse me, Lucius Scipio Asiaticus would lead a Roman army to defeat Antiochus the Great. In defeat, he was required to return all the conquered lands west of the Taurus Mountains. That's in, in southern Turkey, modern Turkey today. Uh, and that would have included Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, and the lands on the south coast of Asia Minor. He was also required to pay the cost of the war. That's, that was 15,000 talents of gold. Now today, okay, that'd be worth $32 million. So it was no small amount then or now. You know, that, and so Antiochus the Great has to scramble to raise those funds to kind of keep paying back Rome for losing the war. And he decided he was going to take his forces and, stri and strike um, different temples to the east. And so he was trying to pillage a Persian temple of Elimias and was killed 
in the skirmish, Rome kept raising taxes. And Seleucus IV, Philippator, had to keep rendering tribute to Rome. In verse 21, a Seleucid warrior, not of the royal household, rose to power when his brother, Seleucus IV, was murdered. He became known as Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Now, we've heard of him before. Okay, chapter, we studied him in chapter 8. Okay? But he became the most cruel king of the north and referred to here in verse 20 as an oppressor. His army swept away the Egyptian forces to the south, driving the surviving Ptolemies and their forces back to Alexandria. In 171 BC, Onias, the high priest of the temple in Jerusalem, was murdered by his brother Menelaus at the request, or perhaps the order, of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus set up Ptolemy VI Philometer as ruler of Egypt in Memphis. That's way to the south of, of Alexandria. Alexandria sits on the Mediterranean. Memphis is way south uh, on the, on the uh, Nile River. So you have two kings in the Ptolemy Empire at the same time. And Antiochus uh, saw this as an opportune moment to lie his way into an arrangement with, uh, the, with um, uh, Ptolemy VI to try and, and uh, place his candidate on the throne. But in reality, what he wanted to do was sweep away all the Ptolemies and plunder Egypt. Instead, Antiochus was uh, um, confronted by a Roman ambassador and forced to choose between war with Rome or dropping his campaign against Egypt and Cyprus. Antiochus chose the latter. In a rage, Antiochus Epiphanes returned north to Palestine and began to savage Jerusalem. Now, we, we studied the slaughter and the enslavement of the, of the Jews. 40,000 killed, 40,000 in slavery, okay, in chapter 8. He, this man was a megalomaniac, elevating himself to God's status, and he sought to wipe away the worship of Yahweh by pillaging the temple and establishing the worship of Zeus. He's responsible for what the Jews call the abomination of desolation. It was an altar set up in the temple of which he offered pigs before the, the statue of Zeus. Now, Zechariah 9 foretold of a brilliant military victory against the army commanders of Antiochus. So when Antiochus went east to go to war out in Babylon, um, this military force arose out of, of Palestine, out of Israel, under the Maccabees, and they crushed the, the army commanders of Antiochus. Ultimately, Yahweh strikes Antiochus dead. There followed a purge of those Jews who collaborated with Antiochus and embraced Hellenistic culture, abandoning their worship of Yahweh. Now that places us at at verse 36 of Daniel chapter 11. Here, there's a shift from prophecy from the time of Cyrus to the death of Antiochus Epiphanes, which most scholars, many scholars, they agree with, with that flow. Okay? And, and uh, when we turn uh, to look at future prophecy, um, we run into little scholarly agreement. Again, the rationalist scholars see the run of prophecy from Cyrus to Antiochus 
as pure history with no divine intervention. And what follows is dismissed because they do not believe in biblical prophecy. They believe that all the rest of the prophecy of Daniel is finished during the time of the Maccabees with no coming Messiah or Antichrist. However, in verses 36 to 45, there are specific prophecies that do not meld with their views. Let's look together. So here, here you have this uh, messenger angel still communicating to Daniel. And he continues, quote, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. And he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him. And he'll do it with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. And he will take action against the strongest of the fortresses, with the help of a foreign god, he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him. And he will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. So Antiochus Epiphanes doesn't fit this prophecy. He didn't elevate himself above every god, for he worshipped Zeus and the other Greek gods. And he did not forsake the gods of his forefathers. Here, this is the little horn beginning to rise to his role as Antichrist. His blasphemies against God will be astounding. He will grow stronger and stronger until he is cut off. Further, the text says he will not be worshiping the God of his fathers and have no desire for women. Now, biblical speculation, and that's what it is at this point, suggests that the Antichrist may have been born into a Jewish heritage. Jewish family, but he will cast off that heritage. Again, the speculation. Verse 37 also states that he will be either celibate or perhaps a homosexual. The God he will honor will be a formerly unknown God, one who works power. Satan would fill that role. Verse 39 speaks of buying favor. Those who support the Antichrist will be rewarded with high honor and rulership over regions of earth. Verses 40 to 41 state, quote, At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. But he will enter countries, overflow them, pass through. He will enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall. And these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Unquote. So a two-front attack is made on the Antichrist, a pincher attack from the north and the south, the king of the north, the king of the south, against the Antichrist and his forces. But it will fail, and he will flood over the borders of countries, leaving devastation behind him. He will enter Israel, the beautiful land, as many countries fall, and the nations and people groups that border Israel to the east, Moab, and Ammon, see that that would be modern Jordan today, and Edom. Well, Edom Edom was descended from Abraham, uh, started uh, by one of Abraham's sons, and 
populated northern Arabia. Okay, it says they're going to be rescued. Those people groups are going to be rescued. Now, we don't know what that means. Are they going to be missed in this warfare? Are they going to be overlooked? <clears throat> Were they already allied with the Antichrist? Or because of their distant relationship to Abraham, they will be rescued and spared in some fashion. We don't know. <clears throat> the North and the South coalitions will throw their best weapons against the force of Antichrist, but to no avail. Many countries and their coalitions will be overrun. These battles appear to be timed in the middle of the seven years of tribulation. Verses 42 to 44 state that, quote, Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape, but he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, over all the precious things of Egypt, and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. In the aftermath of the defeat of the king, king of the south, possibly uh, made up of a Muslim coalition that would include North Africa, modern-day Sudan, Ethiopia, and, and Arabia, the treasures of Egypt would be gobbled up, and the defeated forces will join in following the Antichrist. J.C. Whitcomb wrote, quote, If the king of the south, referring to Egypt, represents an Arab block of nations, then... All the riches of Egypt may include the oil resources of the Middle East. Then come rumors, possibly spoken of in Ezekiel 38-39 and Revelations chapter 9 and 16 that alarm the Antichrist. And he will move his forces intentionally to defeat and annihilate many to the east and to the north. That battleground will be in the Valley of Jezreel the Battle of Armageddon. Now, verse 45 says, quote, And he will pitch his tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. That would place his headquarters in the temple in Jerusalem, perhaps, or even perhaps at Megiddo in the, in the Valley of Jezreel, but that would be between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean. All right, Forge family, why? Are we dredging up all this ancient history in the first part of Daniel chapter 11? Well, Daniel 11 is of immense value when we take out our eschatological theology and examine it. The end times are more fully laid out and described here. In the first 35 verses, there are, there are more than 135 prophecies which have been literally fulfilled and can be fact-checked with the history of those years. The Lord has foretold and foreseen those events because God has displayed his all-knowing ways and his all-powerful abilities. The fulfilled prophecies of the past point directly to his personal, his personal preparedness to completely fulfill what is prophesied for the future. He is Lord over history. The fulfillment of these past prophecies are the product of supernatural, ongoing revelation. God is to be thanked and glorified, and the scriptures are to be held in absolute 
in a state of absolute trustworthiness. So let's pray. God who prophesies. God who superintends history. God who assures us of fulfilled prophecy. We stand before you with our hopes for the future. You alone keep all your promises. You alone see the beginning at the end. We would press into you, trusting in your scripture and the presence of Holy Spirit. Come soon, Lord Jesus. In your mighty name, amen. All right, Forge family, God bless you. We'll see you soon.